Well, good morning, everyone. Um, please turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 as we near the end of our vision series for 2020. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you are here with us. You are full of compassion and wisdom and strength and peace and joy. And above all, you are not only full of love, you are love. We define love based on your character. And we love you and receive the gift of your presence and your peace. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill my mind with your thoughts, my mouth with your words, my heart with your desires, and do the same for everyone here in the room and gathering with us online. Amen. Well, um, what a year, right? 2020 is one for the history books. The New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg recently made the point that 2020 started off like 1974 with an impeachment crisis. Do you remember that? Feels like a decade ago. It was just at the beginning of the year. It quickly became 1918, a global pandemic. Then it turned into 1929, an economic crash. And then it became 1968 with urban unrest all across our nation. Not to mention Portland's unique spin on things. We have to add in a little flavor just to be Portland, right? With over 100 days straight on a very serious tone of violence between protesters and police, which did not let up until once in a generation wildfires shut us all indoors and put us yet again on the front page of pretty much every major international news organization all summer long. If you are feeling out of sorts or off balance, or just plain exhausted. Welcome to church. <laughs> you are not alone. I'm with you and we are in this together. So to end our vision series, as we kind of gear up for fall and the year ahead, we just wanna take a deep kind of breath, even at a very literal level, and process all that we have been hearing from the Spirit of God over the last season. Take a look at Peter's opening line or kind of opening language to the church in exile. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus the Messiah, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. What a great line. Having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's the root problem. For this very reason, make every effort, here's our part, to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. 
For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, just a little more each year, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. But whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind. You're missing it, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. We're a new creation, right? Therefore, in light of all of that, my brothers and sisters, our family, make every effort, do everything you possibly can to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Messiah. Now, last paragraph, take special note. So, I will always remind you of these things, meaning none of what he just said to the church was new at all. It was all kind of to refresh the memory. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus the Messiah has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Note that for Peter, a pastor's role, or at least a part of a pastor's role, is to remind people of what they already know. So to end or kind of near the end of our vision series, this is my last piece in it, I do not have an in-depth teaching from scripture today. We're getting back into Matthew in a week or two or a lecture on culture or whatever, but just a pastoral word that is my best attempt to remind you and myself of what we already know and what we have been hearing from the Spirit. Uh, a key takeaway for me years ago in reading Adam Grant's book, Originals, is that leaders tend to under-communicate by a margin of 10, meaning as a leader, you need to say something 10 times more than you think you need to say it in order for it to take root in the psyche of a man or a woman or a community like ours. And so a lot of this is just to remind you of stuff I've already said, stuff that you've already said, stuff that we have been hearing from the Spirit all year long. But myself and Bethany and Gerald and our elders have kind of come up with 10 things to kind of simplify and summarize, 10 things that is our best attempt to articulate what we have been hearing from the Spirit. I love the Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser. You hear me quote him on a regular basis. His book, Sacred Fire, is like in my top 10. It's a must-read for any of you over the age of 30. If you're pre-30, don't read it yet. Your time has not yet come. Just save it for later, right? Amazon wish list for when you turn 30. But he has a chapter entitled 10 Commandments for the Long Haul. And it's just kind of 10 random things to keep in mind for the second half of life. I go back and reread that chapter on a regular basis. So playing off Rollheiser, I'm like a young wannabe Rollheiser. Today is 10 Commandments for the Long Haul. That is COVID-19. And again, we don't know how much longer COVID and all that comes with it will last. I imagine another six months before things start to go back to normal. Could be longer, could be shorter, we don't know. But back in the spring, we called this our year in the desert. Don't take the year as a prophetic, I don't know how long it will be. But however long, our season in the desert, whatever the time arc is, it is a long haul. It's not a few weeks or even a few months. It is a long suffering in the old King James, a long obedience in the same direction. So here are 10 things to keep before our mind as we move forward. You ready? 
If you're not taking notes, now's a great time to start, all right? Number one, stay calm. Let's just start with the basics, right? Stay, can I want to say that with me? Stay calm. I can't help but think of the kind of cheesy, you know, keep calm and carry on poster from 1939, which was printed by the British government in advance of the Battle of Britain in London and around Great Britain. It's since become cliche, and now you see it like on grandma's coffee mug or whatever, but at the time, it was radical. It was a call to peace in a time of fear. In a similar way, the need of the hour is just to keep calm. Our elders have been reading or rereading Failure of Nerve by Edwin Freeman, which I consider the most important leadership book I've ever read. It's an attempt to apply the learnings of family systems theory to leadership in larger systems like the church or even something as large as the nation state. And Friedman's basic case is that our society is locked in a downward spiral of anxiety. By the way, he was writing this in the late 90s. And the way you break that vicious cycle is with the introduction of what he called a non-anxious presence, someone who is compassionate but who is calm um, in psychological language, who is well-differentiated, a clear boundary line between you and myself or whatever it is. Jesus was the ultimate example of a non-anxious presence. To apprentice under Jesus is to, over time, if even if over a lifetime, to grow and mature, to become someone who is a man or a woman of peace in a kind of society of chronic anxiety. As Paul said to the Colossians, let the peace of Christ, notice it's a passive command. You are commanded to let God do something to you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What's on the throne of your heart? What rules your emotion and your thinking, your heart, that trifecta of your thinking and your feeling and your desire? What's, what rules over your heart, over your thinking, over your feeling, over your desire? Is it the peace of Christ or is it something or someone else? Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body, more on that in a minute, you were called to peace. You were called to peace. I was called to peace. Now, that's easier said than done, right? Just because we're followers of Jesus doesn't mean we're immune to anxiety. How do we become a non-anxious presence? Well, complex, but the short answer is through prayer. As day by day we anchor our mind and even our body in the peace and the presence of God. That's why the first thing on our recommended rule of life for the year ahead is, quote, start the day in quiet prayer and scripture before you turn on your phone or read the news or check your email or any of that. Now, let's just be honest. It's hard to pray right now. I love to pray, and it's really hard for me to pray right now. There is so much distraction in our mind and despair in our heart. We feel the constant pull of kind of the digital news cycle and social media and our phone. We're exhausted. It's hard to focus. We're kind of all over the place at an emotional or even a spiritual level, or maybe that's just my psychosis reading into yours. I don't know. This is where the Psalms are a gift because they teach us how to pray the full gamut of our emotions, even in a time of chaos. And when we don't even know how to pray, they give us language for what we're feeling in the undercurrent of our heart. I start every single morning, 365 days a year, by not reading, but praying a psalm to God. I just start in Psalm 1, and I read to the right, and then I start over. I think this morning was Psalm 135. And then after a psalm, I just pray In the quiet, I often just sit before God and let my heart come up. I love the definition of prayer. 
It's been used for many years as, quote, lifting heart and mind to God. Meaning prayer is not just thinking thoughts at God or speaking words to God. That is part of prayer, but it's just lifting your heart and your mind, really that center of your attention and your desire onto the Trinitarian community of love we call God. And it's in that place of kind of quiet prayer and scripture and yielding over to God that we let go of our attachments that are the cause of all of our fear and all of our suffering. We've done a lot of work on this. And it's there that we also reattach to God the one thing that can never be taken away from us, not by a global pandemic, not by unemployment, not by death or divorce or disease or fear or political chaos or a new mayor who's pro-Antifa, not by any of these scary things. None of it can take it away from us, which means that God is the one thing who can calm our fear as we attach to him and detach from everything else. May we become people of prayer who become people of peace in a city that is chock full of anxiety. Secondly, stay together. Broken record, I know, reminder, right? But we need each other now more than ever. I get that we need to stay six feet apart and wear masks for a season, but just to clarify, social isolation is evil, right? Just to make sure we're on the same page. The Bible begins with a story about social isolation. It does not go well, if you've ever read Genesis 3. And it ends with every tribe and tongue and nation all around the throne of God, worshiping God with no face masks or social distancing at all. Now, that is not, don't misread me, that is not like some crazy, like, science denier, like, you know, passive-aggressive way to say break the rules. Not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying we need to stay together. I read a book recently on neuroscience and spiritual formation, and there's a great chapter on the role that joy plays in our spiritual formation, that without joy, we really do not grow or mature. One doctor I read defined joy as, listen to this, the feeling you get in your body when you make eye contact with another person and you can tell that they are happy to see you. Right now, due to social isolation, a lot of us are living with a joy deficit. There's so much anxiety and anger in the world and so little eye contact and facial recognition and affection and embrace and just the, the things that we used to take for granted, like every Tuesday night, sitting around a table with my community, eating a meal together, right? You remember that when we used to eat meals together? It was a glory, back in the glory days of 2019, you know? <laughs> We need that. We need the joy of relationship. Without that, we have a joy deficit, and we're just full of fear and rage. So however you work it out, if that's like a social distancing walk two times a week or FaceTime or a quarantine group or whatever, stay together. Like, literally, I'm starting to do this. It's so cheesy. We're with people. I only do it with people I'm really close to. I will, like, lock eye contact with them and just say, I'm really happy to see you, right? Just Give a little joy, just give a little joy. That it does, they don't, it's not always reciprocated, but that's a whole other thing for my therapist and me, all right? But just make, do that, give one another love and joy. If you're not in a Bridgetown community or something like that, please start one. If you are, please stay with each other. And one last word here, just do all you can, please, to encourage your leaders. Leader, we have some phenomenal, we have like about 100 community leaders. They are amazing people, and a lot of them are exhausted right now. They need you to contribute, not to critique. 
in the coming weeks, look for a chance to bless them. It would be great if you just want to write them a thank you card or drop off a meal or like pay for them to get a massage or can we even do that in a pandemic? I don't know. A virtual massage? I don't think that's a thing. <laughs> Whatever. Write them a thing, whatever it is, now is the time, again, to level up in our maturity. And one of the best ways to measure your maturity is in relationships, do you give or do you take? I mean, we all do it both, but by that ratio of the sign of maturity is people who give more than they take and not the other way around. And remember, we need to stay together at a micro level, like in our Bridgetown community or in our family or our close interpersonal friendships, but also at a macro level, it's just as important. We often forget that we need to stay together as a church, unified around Jesus. I mean, all of the sociologists are saying there's actually data to now back up this. I thought it was just like a, you know, kind of exaggeration. There's data to now say that our country is more divided right now than it has been since the Civil War. If the church Church is no different, then what do we have to offer the world? One of Jesus' final prayers, John 17, right before his death, was that we would be one, quote, so that the world would know that you sent me. Our unity is a sign to the world that Jesus is real and back from the dead, and not just to the world. Paul in Ephesians 3, after writing about ethnic unity and Jew and Gentile coming together in the new humanity through Jesus' death and resurrection, writes about how that unity is a prophetic witness to the principalities and powers. It is a sign to the demonic host of heaven seeking to wreak havoc on the earth that their fate is sealed, that Jesus is victorious, and their days are numbered. We need to stay together just at the micro level where it's often hardest and at the macro level where in a society like ours, there's zero sense of commitment or loyalty or anything like that. It's, I mean, especially when church is a website. Oh my gosh, Lord save us from 2020. But we need to stay together at a micro level and a macro level. There's more at stake here than just our nice feelings and relationships. There is the witness of Jesus to the world and to the watching principalities and powers. Third, is attend to your body. In biblical theology, you know, I've said this many times, you don't have a body, you are a body. Meaning in the story of scripture, you are human and your body is a part of who you are. It's not just a shell to carry, quote, the real you around. It is a part. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, all of you. Look yourself in the mirror, and even if you don't like your nose, I got my mom's side of the family's nose. It's just a massive disappointment. God bless my mom. She's beautiful. But the waterman knows. It's just whatever. But look at yourself in that mirror and just say, well, that was not in my notes. I'm so sorry. It's been a long year. Don't email me, all right? And mom, you're beautiful and I love you, all right? But we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Again, neuroscience has shown us in recent years that the brain-body dichotomy isn't really scientific or scriptural. Our nervous system is woven all through our body and you can't separate it from your gut or your diet or your lifestyle or just all that you are. And one of the things that we are learning at a very serious note over the last year is just how fragile our body is and, and just how mortal we actually are. Living in a, a society-wide denial or an attempt at denial of death, you just can't you, you have to face the reality. I am human, I am fragile, I am mortal. There is a global pandemic on, and I am not God. I'm not superhuman, I'm not immune. I am a mortal being. And we need to come back to our body 
to attend to God's spirit in us. Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to attend to God in our body, care for it with rest and exercise and water and homemade food and all of that. This may sound unchristian to you, um, some of you who grew up in the Protestant arm of the church, but think of Paul's line in Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The word body there is soma in Greek. It's your whole self, including that physical part of who you are. You know, there's a long-running, what the Pope called a theology of the body in church history. In fact, there's a theory, I read this recently, there's actually a theory that yoga came from Christian missionaries because there's zero evidence for it in India prior to the 6th century. And one theory from historians is that Eastern Christians, the same group that gave us the Jesus prayer and breathing prayer, if you know anything about kind of that tradition, brought yoga to India and then was later kind of subsumed by Hinduism. Now, whether that is true or just a wacky theory, my point is there's a very ancient vein of the church that takes very seriously the body and even breathing that isn't liberal or heretical in the least, that is ancient and orthodox and historic and beautiful. Think about it, the spirit himself is called the pneuma in Greek or the ruach in Hebrew, which is the same word in both Greek and Hebrew that we translate breath or breathing. Every morning I practice a a short form of kind of breathing prayer called the welcoming prayer where I just kind of come into my body and I just start at my top and I move down to my toes and just notice any sensations or emotions, good or bad, without judgment. And as I notice them, I just sink into them and just pray a very short prayer. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Welcome, Holy Spirit. Come, fill my body, fill my mind, fill all that I am. So remember just to care for your body with gentleness and respect and to welcome the Holy Spirit day after day into your whole person. Number four, Put your hope in Jesus' return, not in Washington, D.C. Come on. I'm going to get some emails on this, and that's okay. I'm Anabaptist in theology. I'm here on purpose, all right? There's a lot of disappointment or full-on despair in the world right now, and disappointment is an emotional signal from our body that our hope was set on the wrong object. For many people in our city and in our nation, their hope is set on Washington, D.C. and their politician or political party of choice. Leslie Newbegin, who is one of the seminal thinkers on post-Christianity, all the way back in the 70s, saw over the horizon and said, this was his prediction, that at, or really it's a prophecy, I think, that as the West secularizes, religion would not go away. Rather, his working theory was people would transmit and transpose that religious impulse for the kingdom of God onto the kingdom of man, i.e. onto politics. He warned Christians in the 70s of what he called the rise of the political religions. We are living through that now, left and right, which if you know the story, go back to the French Revolution in the 1700s, where those that were for the overthrow of the monarchy stood to the left of the king in parliament, and those who were more cautious about revolution and had a higher view for tradition stood on the right. The left and right have for many centuries been in a kind of healthy balance where they each kind of not cancel each other out, but contribute things that we need to hear and need to think about. But left and 
right have turned in recent years into two rival religions locked in a kind of holy war with zealots out front on the field of battle, or at least on social media. As David Brooks put it in an op-ed a few months ago, over the last half century, we've turned politics from a practical way to solve common problems into a cultural arena to display resentments. That's one of the reasons there is so much anxiety and anger right now around politics because it's no longer just about how we can function well as a society, and that matters a lot. It's become, more than that, a utopian kind of attempt to forge the kingdom without the king. And I'm all for, like, I get, don't, you don't need to email me, I get how much we need politics. In fact, I'm more aware of that at this stage in my life than I ever have been before. But we have to remember, much of this kind of utopianism is just another example of what the New Testament calls the world. The world is a place where, in the language of Abraham Joshua Heschel, quote, man reigns supreme with the forces of nature as his only possible adversaries. Man is alone, free, and growing stronger. God is either non-existent or unconcerned. It is human initiative that makes history, and it is primarily by force that constellations change. Man can attain his own salvation. That is the dominant view of our age, but it is the view of the world. It is not the view of the kingdom of God. You do not get that from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or the writings of the New Testament. You get a whole other vantage point on human history. We do not reign supreme. Only Jesus does. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. We are dependent, contingent, fragile, mortal. We do need to be saved and not by technology or AI or a miracle drug, though I'm all for most of that, but by Jesus upon his return to make all things new. Number five, remember the maxim, in essentials, unity, say this with me, in non-essentials, diversity, in all things, charity. I'm sure you recognize it. That saying goes back, some we don't know for sure, some argue all the way to St. Augustine in the fourth century. There's a lot to argue about right now. Can we agree on that, at least? From politics, to masks, to COVID etiquette, to vaccines, to the best way forward on racial justice, to politics, and there are more opinions out there than there are people. We should at least give one another the benefit of the doubt. I remember um, when I was in high school, I was in the speech and debate club, and I remember you take that class, and you take your rhetoric class, and you learn kind of the 10, you know, all the ancient kind of Greek rhetoric stuff. And I remember this thing called the principle of charity, which was basically just a maxim that when you're in a debate and somebody says something that you could twist or manipulate or take in an ungracious way, you give people the benefit of the doubt. It's called the principle of charity. You just interpret that in a charitable way. Well, they probably don't actually mean this or they probably didn't mean this thing, which is a little weird, a little counterintuitive, right? You would think that if you're in a debate and your goal is to beat the other person in intellectual sparring, that you would just pick every single word apart. But what you actually discover is that if you interact that way with people, it makes any kind of debate impossible. You literally, and without the principle of charity, you can't have an intellectual, thoughtful conversation in the pursuit of wisdom. Even if your goal is to win, it's a bad strategy. We need to come back to the principle of charity with one another and not pick every line or word apart. As followers of Jesus, we are to, quote, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Listen to that command, and it is a command in context 
context is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter four. As a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul knew something or other about politics, right? He was on the, on the other side of it. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be, here's how we do that. Listen to this. Be completely humble and gentle. Are we humble? Are we gentle with one another? Be patient. Are we patient? Bearing with one another in love. A lot of you bear with me. Thank you for that. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And can I get an amen after that? We have to discern what things are essential. Right here, we have to divide. We have to agree on this stuff. What things are non-essential? We don't have to agree here. It's okay to say, well, I disagree with that. And in all things charity, in all things a humble, gracious kind of patient love. Remember, our vision is to become a community of honor and a culture of contempt. Contempt is the norm in our city. We literally are beginning to celebrate it in our city. But contempt has no place in the heart or life or social media comment feed of a follower of Jesus. Honor is the operating system of the kingdom of God. Let us, in the language of Romans, honor one another above ourselves. On that note, number six, be peacemakers. Note peacemakers, not peacekeepers. What's the difference? Well, a peacekeeper's job is to maintain the status quo. And that's fine unless the status quo is problematic, if it's, for example, racial injustice. A peacemaker's job is to bring enemies together in repentance and reconciliation across both sides. And that is what we are. We are, in the language of the New Testament, reconcilers. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Is there a period there? Is that the end of the sentence? No. no. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now we are to do what Jesus has done for us to others. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has, that's what forgiveness is. When you don't count people's sins against them, you release them from the need for punishment. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We carry the message of reconciliation, a nod to the gospel. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. When you go to your coffee shop, when you go to the office in the morning, when you show up for Zoom meeting at 8.30 a.m. tomorrow or whatever you do with your life, you are God's ambassador. You carry a message of reconciliation and a call to make peace between enemies. And if you stay with it, good will come for our church and for our city and our nation. I love that line from James. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I would love on the back end of this tragic year a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of right relationships for our church, our city, and beyond. Number seven, are you still with me? Just three more. We're almost done. There's no long ending, I promise. Just stay with me. Don't let social media destroy your soul. 
we must view our relationship to our phone, to the internet, and to social media in particular as a key part of our discipleship, as what the ancients called a passion that we must surrender to Jesus. We must incorporate that into our formation. We've made the case in the past for what we called a digital asceticism. In previous eras, people, you know, and this is hard for us to imagine, but would take a vow of poverty or a vow of celibacy. I wonder if the prophetic witness for our generation would be to take like a vow of no social media or a vow of just being nice online <laughs> or a vow of like, not believing conspiracy theories. I wonder if the prophetic witness would be to take a digital Sabbath once a week or to not even have a smartphone or just to live in a countercultural way to the world. If you don't have a digital rule of life, craft one. We've done in-depth teaching. Go back and listen to our series a year ago on that. If you have yet to watch that new documentary, The Social Dilemma, um, please do. As we head into the election, please, and forgive I'm overstepping here at my pastoral role, but please do not get your news from social media. The combination of Silicon Valley's algorithms with the digital echo chamber is most likely the primary source of political polarization in our time, as well as the rise of conspiracy theories and our culture of contempt. If you can, if you have 10 extra dollars a month, pay for news from a trustworthy source like The Economist or something, or read it off a site like Reuters or the AP, and if you can, read across the spectrum. Read just that simple website, All Sides is great. I check it a couple times a week, from the left, from the right, from the center. Read people you disagree with. I do this all the time. As a follower of Jesus in Portland, I do this all the time, but <laughs> read people you disagree with in order to, uh, in an attempt to really navigate the complexity of the world, not to make it fit into our hyper-simplistic assumptions. It's just my opinion there. Maybe that's overstepping my bounds. Forgive me. But however you flesh it out, here is what is not. We must guard our mind as an act of apprenticeship to Jesus. We must empty it of lies and fill it with truth. And we do this through the curation of our attention what we give our attention to is the person we become. And what economists are now calling the attention economy, this means we have to talk about discipleship to Jesus and our digital life. As Morgan Davis, one of our elders, said to me a few days ago, attention is voluntary self-surrender. Through your attention, you give the inner part of yourself to another in vulnerability. Attention to social media is a voluntary self-surrender to the anxiety, rage, and contempt of our time. Attention to God through reading scripture and prayer and worship on Sunday by singing and time in community is surrender to the Trinitarian community of love and joy and peace. Who do you want to become like, Jesus or Twitter? The choice is up to you. Number nine, or sorry, number eight. Be grateful. You got excited there. You're like, ooh, we're skipping one. Great. Nope. Be grateful. I've been reading and rereading Paul of late in the New Testament. I'm struck by what a major theme gratitude is in Paul's mindset and really in his theological paradigm. And for him, it's a practical outworking of faith in God. You can't read half a page without a call from Paul to be grateful. For Here's one example of dozens. Colossians 3. Be grateful 
thankful. It's a command, emphatic. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what we're doing in particular by singing is we're just giving thanks. Gratitude, more than any other practice that I know of, has the potential to shift our experience of pain from suffering to joy. Because we realize through gratitude, through the practice or even the discipline, and at times it really is a discipline of gratitude, that even through our pain, God is at work to grow us and mature us and set us free to a whole new dimension of life. I think of that line from the poet Rumi, be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Like, be grateful for whoever and whatever comes. Ronald Rollheiser again writes, gratitude is the basis of all holiness. The holiest person you know is the most grateful person you know because a grateful person is aware that all of life is a gift. There is creator and creation, and life is not something to grasp and wrestle control over, but to receive and surrender to in love. The more grateful you become, the more holy you will become, and vice versa. The more holy you become, the more grateful you will become. Morris West, in his autobiography of View from the Ridge, suggests that at a certain age, our lives simplify, and we just have, in his language, three phrases left in our spiritual vocabulary. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In an age with so much focus on human rights, which I am all for, it's easy to forget that life itself is a gift, not a right. We have to keep telling ourselves that over and over and over. Life is a gift. Today is a gift. The food before me is a gift. Breath in my lung cavity is a gift. Church, even if it's online or with two people with masks on six feet apart in my living room, it is a gift. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I was just born. And every breath is sheer mercy. It's all gift. Be grateful for whatever comes. Number nine, acceptance of reality is the pathway to maturity. The psychologist M. Scott Peck defined mental health as, quote, dedication to reality at all costs. One way to think about maturity is as integration. That's a word I really like. As we integrate to what is, we mature. You know, one of, of course, over the last five years, the leading ethical conversation in our city and beyond is around postmodern gender theory. And one of the reasons we just, in all honesty, with a lot of humility and compassion, don't buy it is not only because it's a far cry from Jesus' vision and really the biblical vision of human beings as embodied creatures and as gendered creatures made in God's image, male and female, but it's also because it's the opposite of integration a key part of health and wholeness and maturity and joy is integrating, beginning with to your body itself and to your gender and to your story and to your family of origin and the social group you come from and to your past and to your present. It's making peace with the reality of what is as you recognize that God is with you no matter what is. 
The way we do this is through a practice. It's really a type of prayer with a long-running tradition in the way of Jesus. It goes all the way back to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his iconic line, not my will, but what? Yours be done. Spiritual writers have come to call this detachment. Robert Mulholland defines it as, quote, a deep inner posture of joyful release of our life and being to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservations. It is neither a passive resignation, resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. Finally, number 10, on that note, don't miss the chance of a lifetime to grow and mature and become more like Jesus and in doing so, who God had in mind when you were just a dream in the Trinity's mind and imagination before you were even in your mother's womb. In order to grow and mature out of 2020, we have to shift from the question, how can I get out of this, to what can I get out of this? Now, I don't know about you, but if I could like flip the Adam Sandler switch and just fast forward to fall 2021, I would in a heartbeat. By then, I think we're back to normal, right? Or whatever, but we can't do that. But even if we could, I would miss out on the chance of a lifetime. Years ago, Morris Dirks, who's a spiritual director here in town and a kind of a pastor to pastors, gave me this diagram of kind of three levels to life. Level one is what he called the managed life where the driving question is, how do I look and feel good, right? This is where pretty much all of us start out. The focus is on, quote, living by a set of principles to be successful. Um, all, pretty much all of us start here, and a lot of us never mature beyond this. But at some point, even if you do not mature, you age. <laughs> Those two things do not always go together. They can, but they do not always. But you age, and in time, in life, you get hurt, whether it's by others or by your own failure or failures or just by life, whether it happens when you are a baby or when you're into your adult life. At some point, you receive a wound. Then you click down into level two, what he called the wounded life, where the driving question for most of us is, what can I do to get back to looking and feeling good, right? And the focus is on, quote, doing whatever it takes to solve the pain or problem to get back to the managed life. And sometimes we're pretty sharp people, and especially if you have any measure of privilege behind you or some street smarts or whatever, a lot of the times it works. You do the right thing, you figure out the life hack, and you get back on top but you never mature. You're no different than you were before. But at some point, it just doesn't work. At some point, you don't, there's a wound that you can't get over. There's a problem that doesn't have a solution. There's a question that does not have a good answer. There's a mystery that doesn't wrap itself up at the end of a 50-minute segment with a clear, like, this is who actually did it, and this is why. I don't quote Richard, very, Richard Rohr very often because of, I disagree with much of his theology, but he has this great line that I have in my like, personal diary. I read it on a regular basis. He writes, most problems are psychological in nature, but in fact, most solutions are spiritual. Wow. 
Therefore, we have to eventually move from trying to solve them, which is good and needed, to knowing that we cannot finally solve them at the level that matters. Maybe we can only forgive them, embrace them, or weep over them. When you come to that point, and for many of us, 2020 is that point, you receive an invitation to level three, to what Morris called the forming life, where the driving question is, what is God doing through this and in me? And your focus is on, quote, allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work through the pain. And Morris said to me, you know, John Mark, when you face what the writer of James called a trial, we read that a few weeks ago, everything in you will fight to want to get back up, to get back to looking and feeling good. How can I get to where I was before I was sad or stressed out or out of work or whatever it is? But if you want to grow and mature and let God enlarge your soul and your capacity for love and for joy and for peace and for God himself, you have to go the opposite direction. The counterintuitive move of the spirit is not up but down and what some have called a spirituality of descent where we shift our question from how can I get out of this to what can I get out of this? If you've not done it yet, I highly recommend you get out your journal. If you don't have one, that you pick one up or however you do that and articulate your best sense of what the Spirit of God is trying to do in you and through you in this season. And then every morning or every Sabbath or every once in a while, whatever, pull that list out in prayer and just say yes to God. Just, it's, it's passive command. Just let God work and just welcome Yes, give your yes, yield to the work of the Spirit in your soul. As we've said so many times, this year could be the turning point in our spiritual formation. When our grandchildren someday, and some of you already have grandchildren, the analogy breaks down, I'm sorry, but when they ask us, how did you grandfather, grandmother, how did you become so calm or so wise or so full of joy? What was, were you always like this? And we will say, no, absolutely not. You should have, you should, it's a good thing you did not know me when I was younger, right? I was full of anxiety or stress. I was selfish. I was this. I was foolish. How did you become this kind of a person after following Jesus? Well, there was this one year, and it was a horrible year. Pretty much everything bad that can happen went bad. And then at the end, North Korea attacked, and it was just, just kidding, whatever. <laughs> like, it was, it was a rotten year. But you know, I was with my community. I spent more time in prayer that year than I ever had. God broke attachments that had been holding me back from maturity and life for my entire life. And I didn't even feel like I was doing anything other than just waking up in the morning and persevering. But God did this deep work in me and he set me free. And, and there were other hard times and decades to follow, but God did a catalytic work in me through that year. This year has the potential to do that for you and for me. And that's all, that's my heart for Bethany, for Gerald, for our elders and pastors and our team. That is just our heart. Bethany brought up that beautiful line a few days ago. I've been thinking about it from Paul to the Colossians. He, Jesus, is the one we, church leaders, proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. 
Like that's the end. The word there in Greek is telos. That's the teleology. That's the telos of our spiritual journey as a church to become fully mature in Christ. Let's not miss what God has for us as we journey. We don't know how long this will last. We don't know what all will happen. We don't know what is around the bend and that is okay because God is with us. We are together the peace and the presence of God are our pastor, our director, and we're gonna get through.